Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to the Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. On this episode of The Original Guide to Men's Health, we will be exploring clinical guidelines, quality outcomes, quality measures. What do they mean? Why are they important? To help guide us on this informational journey, I would like to introduce Dr. John Gore. John Gore is a professor of urology at the University of Washington and health services researcher. He is the principal investigator of a large pragmatic trial in bladder cancer and quality of care expert. He previously served as the American Urological Association's representative to the National Quality Forum, which endorses national health care performance measures and has been on the guidelines panels for the NCCN, National Comprehensive Cancer Network, for kidney cancer, and for the AUA, American Urologic Association, for bladder cancer. Welcome, Dr. John Gore. Dr. Gore is with us as not only an academic urologist, an amazing surgeon, an amazing clinician, and a tremendous researcher, an instructor and educator at the University of Washington School of Medicine with our urology residents, but also one of the foremost experts in clinical care guidelines, in clinical care outcomes research. So Dr. Gore, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. I know that a lot of people are wondering, what are we talking about? So let's start first with the idea of actually what are uh, clinical outcomes? I mean, what do they mean and how are they used? And why don't you give a little background into that? Yeah. Thank you so much, Rich. It's a pleasure to be here and I'm excited to talk about this. You know, when we think about outcomes measures or some people call them performance measures or quality measures, we're talking about, you know, the ways that we prescribe care based on our best available evidence. So these are not things that we should do some of the time or that we should think about as options for our patients. In general, these are the things that we should probably all be doing most of the time for patients with those healthcare conditions. So there are a lot of easy examples to this. So for example, if a patient is diagnosed with newly diagnosed prostate cancer that's confined to the prostate, we should engage them in a shared decision-making process to understand their preferences, and figure out what treatment best matches those preferences. That's something we should do every time when we talk to one of those patients. 
And so in general, what we're not trying to do is come up with algorithmic patterns of care. We're trying to figure out kind of what are those things that everyone should have most of the time. So we base this, you know, not just on intuition. <laughs> and, you know, there are different levels of clinical expertise and people who have just started their clinical career. And there's people who have been in clinical medicine for years and years and years. And, you know, there are people who read a lot and read everything. And there's journal articles and there's textbook articles. So how do we construct what we feel is involved in? Is there a difference in a clinical measure versus a clinical guideline? That is a great comparison because they are very different. So a clinical measure is essentially something that we should be doing, like I said, almost all the time. A clinical guideline, that's where we go to really understand, you know, best practices for, you know, the health conditions that we're trying to treat, but it could be more algorithmic or it could be more equivocal. You'll never see a clinical measure that says, well, you could do this, or maybe you could do this, or maybe you could do this. But you'll see that in a clinical guideline because there are a lot of clinical situations that we all confront where there is equipoise for a number of different options for that patient. And that guideline is just trying to represent those options. Whereas a clinical measure is trying to tell you for this specific instance, this is what you probably should be doing. So uh, again, for listeners, there is you know, this world of information out there. And people get medical information from many different sources, and they hear about this and they hear about that. And of course, you know, hopefully they have established a relationship with their physician, their care practitioner, and they trust the information that's coming from that practitioner. So when we are in this world of misinformation, and I don't want to drag you into a whole conversation about that, but I do want people to understand, though, where their caregiver, clinician, is coming from when they talk about quality medicine, clinical measures. I mean, where do they evolve from? Where do they feel, okay, this has the stamp of approval? This is a process that has gone through a lot of iterations over the last probably 20 years. A lot of this comes from an overarching framework under the rubric of healthcare quality. And a name that you hear a lot is Arvidas Donabedian. And it breaks the different kind of aspects of healthcare that we provide into structure, process, and outcomes. This is a core framework for quality of care that includes structure. These are things like the local health system factors that help you provide better care. So an example of a structure outcome is you know, whether or not your hospital has interventional radiology resources, right? You're much better able to manage post-radical cystectomy complications, if you are at a place with a cancer center designation, that is associated with some structural factors that are probably related to quality of care. A process measure is something that you do that we think is a better thing to do. So that example I gave earlier of shared decision-making for prostate cancer when you engage in shared decision-making, that patient probably feels better about their prostate cancer decision. That's a process. And then an outcome, that's something that we can measure more easily. You know, if you gave a patient a cancer drug, did their cancer shrink or did their cancer get worse? And God forbid they died of that cancer. If you did a surgery, did they spend a night in the ICU or were they able to go to a regular ward bed? 
these are outcomes that kind of represent, you know, probably some high quality processes. Well, as our medical system evolved and tried to prioritize quality and value, so value is that cross product of quality and cost, there was an impetus to better measure it. And so the idea of quality and performance measures was born. And there is now a process by which we can nominate quality and performance measures that are then included among payers in how they potentially sort of categorize the care that we provide. And there's an organization called the National Quality Forum that endorses those quality measures for use by Medicare. And the process by which you come up with a measure is a pretty rigorous process. Dr. Pelman and I are part of the American Urological Association, which has had a longstanding emphasis on quality and quality measures. And the process by which the AUA has tried to propose different performance and quality measures is fairly rigorous. It involves high-level evidence synthesis. So what is known about this condition and what are the best practices that are known and have high-level evidence behind them? And then how are these used in clinical practice? Are these also, not only are they evidentiary standards, are they community standards? And then if you can show that level of rigor where this is something that should be always done all the time, then you propose that for endorsement and inclusion in some of these national quality reporting standards. So I'm going to uh, send out some kudos to the American Urologic Association. And as urologists, we were very early, very early in adapting the need for quality measures. And Dr. Hetty Hubbard was the first director under the auspices of the AUA to help with this and develop these measures and guidelines. I want listeners to understand other specialties as well participate from family practice and internal medicine and other specialty areas in medicine and surgery. So this is not just particular to us as urologists, but I, again, will emphasize we were very early to go into this and embrace it. So if we look at the idea that we have adapted certain methods or ways of approaching patients or treatment options that we think have superior outcomes. It's just not you and I sitting in a room. (laughs) People have looked at what we call medical evidence. And when people talk about, I practice evidence-based medicine, we're partially referring to the fact that we use outcomes. Go into the process a little bit, because you've served on these committees and all your spare time, which you don't have. I'm going to use an example of the AUA, the urology organization, because I think they have a process that works very well for maintaining guidelines that are contemporary. So one of the problems with performance measures, clinical measures, and guidelines is that the evidence changes, the treatments change, and so the guidelines have to change and evolve with them. And so the AUA often contracts with something called the ARC Effective Healthcare Program. This is a program by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality that's a federal agency that's sort of adjacent to the NIH that has a series of evidence-based practice centers across the country where there are experts in evidence-based medicine. And these experts are really facile at looking at the evidence compiling the evidence, synthesizing it, 
and helping us understand what is known about the different aspects of care that we provide. And so there have been these evidence-based practice center reviews that have looked at bladder cancer care, erectile dysfunction care, prostate cancer care, and those then are shared with a team of experts. And the AUA casts a very wide net far and wide to look at you know, what experts should be contributing to these guidelines panels. So you combine this evidence synthesis, what is known and what are the best things to apply for these clinical situations with these expert experiences to come up with guideline statements. And these guideline statements are carefully considered. The wording is carefully reviewed to make sure that you know, the wording cannot be misconstrued or parsed differently. The wording of these guideline statements is very specific, and it's really important that it's parsed so that the guideline statements cannot be misconstrued. And so it's an iterative process that takes place over a series of months till we finalize the guideline statements. I would describe it as a rigorous process. I want to go back and just pick up a couple of things. We kind of jump from outcomes to guidelines without really giving guidelines definition. So I do want to go back to that. But you made a statement that was so true, and I think it's really important for people to grasp and understand, is that science is fluid. And a lot of people, again, going back to this misinformation, well, they were wrong. They weren't wrong. They gave us the information as it was understood at the time. And good science is not frozen. It does become fluid and dynamic and it adjusts as more information is known. And that's exactly what you were describing and why these things are not etched in stone. They evolve. Absolutely. I mean, I think we see it in our own practices, right? I am mainly a cancer surgeon, and the way that I think about the treatments of my patients is very different today than it was five years ago or 10 years ago, because I'm trying to adapt to the best available evidence. Absolutely. So I understood that you know we have these outcome measures that we look at best practice we have evolved when we talk about guidelines they are different than as we mentioned earlier just clinical measures so go back and define a guideline so we really understand what that is i think examples are always really helpful i'm going to take an example of a very contemporary situation so a performance measure should be something along the lines of a patient over 50 in your primary care practice should be strongly considered for a COVID vaccine booster. That's a quality measure. So we believe that this is something that is effective for patient care and the public health. A guideline would be something like, in considering a booster for your patient, options include the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. But we don't know, you know, which is best. We just know that you should probably get one. And so what we're trying to do with performance measures is help people make decisions about the care that they should provide. What we're trying to do with guidelines is we're just trying to help people understand best practices for a number of health conditions. So guidelines tend to be broader performance measures tend to be more specific. And so for a condition like, for example, bladder cancer that I treat a lot, we would have something like 50 guideline statements that yield three performance measures because the performance measures are things that need to be always done. 
But as we practice with our patients, we encounter a number of different scenarios, and we want to be able to have some idea of the best practices for those scenarios. And they don't often meet the rigor of a performance measure. And we want to leave some latitude within the patient-caregiver encounter because, again, we're, and we'll go into this in a bit, but we are not all 737s coming off of a production source. We encounter different scenarios with our patients, and we have to adjust somewhat. So we can't be too rigid, but we can have a sort of best way to go about things. A great corollary to that is that a lot of these performance measures and guideline statements are based on evidence that may not be reflective of the patients we see in our practice every day. Right. Oftentimes, these high-quality research studies are done on a narrowly defined patient population, but the patient that we see in our office maybe has more health conditions or prior treatments that influence the care that we're going to provide today, and they don't fit neatly into this square you know, description that is in the guideline statement, and we do have to think outside the box and have some flexibility in the care that we provide. And I use the analogy of production 737. A lot of this sort of crossed over from the airplane industry. Go through that a little bit, how that influenced medicine. So I think, you know, medicine and the airline industry have similar, traditionally, similar hierarchical structures that necessarily need to be somewhat demystified for quality care to be provided. So probably the best analogy between the cockpit and something in medicine is the surgical operating room. And so one great example where medicine has translated a lot of the processes that are now just standard and rote in the airline industry is the use of checklists. And so, you know, before a flight, there's a pre-flight checklist. There's a post-flight checklist. These are things that are rigorously confirmed, you know, before, during, and after a flight. And just like that flight should be routinized because we went through the checklist, a lot of surgeries should also be routinized. We now think of these checklists that we do in the operating room as something that we just do. You know, I got to make it to the OR for my step one checklist completion. But that was a barrier way back when. And it seemed like an onerous task to do. It seemed like something extra that didn't really make a difference. But actually, when you add checklists to surgical care, a large-scale study done by the WHO and led by Atul Gawande, who was heavily influenced by a lot of the quality changes that were made in the airline industry, showed a reduction in complication rates and errors because of the use of checklists, just like was shown in the airline industry. And so, you know, one thing that I think is really cool about the industry that we are in, the healthcare industry, is that it does try to think you know, beyond its own domains and figure out what we can learn from other industries that can help us provide better care. And the surgical checklist, just for listeners, you go in and you know it goes from a team. So in an operating room, you have anesthesia, you have surgeon, surgical assistants, you have scrub nurse, you have circulating nurses, And there may be some other personnel. And everybody now has a voice in that checklist so that, again, we're identifying what needs to be done, is the equipment there, trying to reduce any surgical complications, errors, or problems. And as you said, the data shows that it's favorable. 
Absolutely. You know, one of the anecdotes that, you know, Atul Gawande himself shares is about a famous crash of a Korean air flight, where part of the reason for the crash was the intense hierarchy in the cockpit and on the plane. And we see that in our own operating rooms and an operating room works better. And this is probably true of a lot of other healthcare settings. A clinic works better. A ward works better when everyone feels that they can speak up and make a comment about quality of care. And so breaking down that hierarchy is really important to having a positive, high quality environment. So I'm going to now move to the guideline panel of experts that are charged with, you can pick one and use an example. But if I was in the public, I might say, well, those are all physicians. Where's the voice from the public, the non-physician? Is that being thought about or incorporated into any guidelines at this point? That is a really excellent point. And the answer is yes and no. And so there are a lot of guidelines panels that incorporate some representative of, for example, the patient voice. So a lot of the AUA panels, you can see a patient representative on those panels. That's true of a lot of the ASCO panels as well. The National Comprehensive Cancer Network that has a lot of guidelines that we follow in clinical cancer care. So they incorporate outside individuals? They often do, but you know what I think is a reasonable you know question about that is is one person representative of the broad patient voice, and the answer is maybe not. A lot of these guidelines are also made available for public comment in sort of like an open comment period to weigh in on the guidelines, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's an accessible process to a lot of people. So one reasonable criticism of these guidelines is that many of them often represent the opinions of experts without broad consideration of the opinions of the on the boots or boots on the ground general practitioner or the patient with that health condition who's confronting sort of the lived experience of that health condition. So, you know, from a patient experience, looking at their physician who maybe is now having a discussion with them about cancer. And, you know, they trust their physician, they've been with them, or maybe they've just been referred, had a test, found out they have cancer, and there hasn't been a long-term relationship. And, you know, they trust the individual practitioner, but saying, well, how do I know you're doing the right thing? Should I get a second opinion? Well, before we go into that, how do the guidelines help the person who is now receiving this news feel comfortable about the care they're getting? Is there a way for the public to find guidelines? So I would say almost all guidelines are publicly accessible. So for our organization, the AUA, the guidelines are available on their website and can easily be accessed by sort of Googling, you know, prostate cancer guidelines or erectile dysfunction guidelines. And so it should be able to be accessed for most individuals. Is the language in there accessible to the average patient? You know, maybe, maybe not. We do try to make the language in these guidelines accessible to the average patient. I do think that it's very hard to be a patient in the US healthcare system. It's hard to know if your doctor is following guideline, you know, driven care. It's hard to know if your doctor is following evidence-based care. And we would love to think that every patient out there is activated and checking in on the care that they're being provided, but it's very hard to do, you know, and it's a lot easier just to trust that your provider is doing the right thing, you know, by your care. There are ways that the system has tried in the past to incentivize guideline-driven care. I would probably say that those ways have been mildly effective, 
What often moves the needle in healthcare is sort of the cultural sweep. And what I mean by that is there is a much stronger culture of quality embedded in the healthcare system today than there was 20 years ago. And part of that is that we as healthcare providers have been inundated with this messaging for 20 years, such that it's become part of our standard considered practice. And that's different. And that's often how kind of practice changes made, that sort of the culture around you changes and you change with it. It's less likely that sort of like um, you're going to see that one statement and say, I'm going to do this forever now. And so that's the hard thing. How do you take these statements and then go into a provider's practice and say, well, you need to start doing this, this, and this now. That's a lot harder to do. I mentioned that it's hard to be a patient. It's hard to be a provider as well. Yeah, I've practiced long enough to have watched the evolution of this from practitioners going, don't tell me how to practice. You know, I've been practicing for 30 years and you're telling me how I should be practicing now. And yet what we're evolving to is the best way to approach a problem. We're not telling you how to do it, but we're using some evidence to show that this is the best way. And, you know, we had Journal Club. Probably the biggest influence, like you're saying, was peers. And we would all say, well, I do it like that. And we had 30 people at Journal Club and 29 said, I do it like that. The one who didn't, <laughs> it's kind of, you know, people don't like to be the outlier amongst their peers. And I think that's what you're talking about, this evolution over time. It's interesting. So a lot of people have looked at peer networks and influence in practice. And, you know, Rich and I are surgeons. And so that actually is a, a huge influence on surgical practice. But it turns out that those peer networks are often more influential than guideline statements or, you know, statements from our professional organizations. And so it really is important that as sort of a peer network community, you're trying to kind of maintain your contemporary practice because that has a huge, huge influence, you know, on the care that we provide. And just so people who are listening understand that not all guidelines agree with each other among the same topic. So we as urologists have guidelines and we do try to consider in the construction of those guidelines some of the other emphasis, but you might take the same subject area in a primary care guideline and find, well, that's different than what I just read on the urology guideline. <laughs> like you said, it's difficult to practice medicine in the United States. And it's hard to be a patient. You know, we, we don't need to get into PSA screening, but, you know, it's just hard to know as a patient what the right thing is to do when there are conflicting you know, guidelines in these domains. You know, I do think, you know, getting back to sort of the doctors that are like, don't tell me how to practice. You know, I think the culture of medicine has shifted away from those individuals. And I think we've shifted away from an individualistic approach to medicine to more of a team-based approach to medicine. And I do think that's probably a good change. I'm anti-zealotry. And I think there is a thing that is medical zealotry, you know, and we see it where you have, you know, this kind of concept of, you know, this doctor has a hammer and everything looks like a nail. And I think that we're slowly, you know, moving away from that kind of culture. And then on the, you know, patient-based side, there used to be complaints of these measures were just cost-cutting, so you didn't have to treat me the way I should be treated. And, you know, there was maybe some legitimacy at the early stages to what was going on, but, I mean, it wasn't that the end point was to cut costs, but some of the improvements did 
end up being economically favorable. There was some wastage. So go into that a little bit for the suspicious patient who's going, I don't want to be uh, cookie cuttered. So one important thing to know is that most organizations that are involved in either creating or validating or endorsing quality measures do not consider cost. And so if you're concerned that Medicare is looking to just go with cheaper alternatives, and that's why this performance measure system has been created, that's not true. But a lot of the measures that came out in the early measure development process related to over-treatment. And that's because endemic in our healthcare system is a tendency to do more than you need to, to order more tests than you need to, to order more x-rays than you need to. That's just been sort of built into our US healthcare system for a long time. And that's why a lot of the early performance measures related to over-treatment or over-ordering. So as an example, a man who is diagnosed with a lower risk form of prostate cancer doesn't need a whole lot of x-rays to look for cancer spread. So one of the early performance measures for prostate cancer was on avoidance of use of expensive bone scans or expensive CT scans to evaluate that man for spread of their cancer. That is a no-brainer. That shouldn't be done, but it was a very kind of standard order that we all did. And so it made sense to try to eliminate that waste. There's a great analogy that I read once that variation in healthcare is like heat in a mechanical system. It's evidence of waste. And so if you do a landscape survey of the care that we provide, and you see that a lot of people are doing a lot of different things, that kind of means none of us knows what the right thing to do is, and that's evidence of waste. And so that's sort of a beacon saying, hey, we need to look at this kind of care paradigm and figure out how we can do it better. And that evolution in prostate cancer really did come from the fluidity and dynamics of gathering data. And when people sifted through the lower grade cancers with lower PSAs, how many of those tests ended up being positive? So few that it didn't justify getting those tests. It wasn't just somebody saying, we're not going to do those because it costs too much. And actually, it's also, it turned into a great forum for proving the benefit of something called collaborative quality improvement. So this is something where, again, our urology organization has been a real leader, but the AUA has a quality registry, but probably the most well-known quality registry in urology is called MUSIC. It's the Michigan Urological Surgery Quality Improvement Collaborative, and you know, when they were trying to figure out how to unite this collection of providers with heterogeneous practices, they needed to come up with some things that they could all unite around to try to provide better quality care. And they were able to show that simple reduction and overordering for prostate cancer was an easy win to prove the benefit of one of these collaboratives. And now they're doing more and more advanced quality improvement projects. But, you know, these early performance measures really were helpful in trying to kind of unite providers toward a common quality goal. So, you know, the inundation of electronic medical records into patient care, I always wish that newer renditions of electronic records would have guidelines built in so that you could, if somebody comes in and you and I type in hematuria, blood in the urine. So we're seeing a patient because they've urinated blood. 
then automatically it's populated with the guideline and the workup. So, you know, it helps the patient see that, oh, well, somebody else has thought about this. And yeah, I trust my doctor, but there it is. And this is what we're doing. So we're doing the right thing. And I always love sharing guidelines with patients. 100%. I think it's a really great way to reassure patients. That is this concept of clinical decision support. We're lucky in that we have a very kind of, I mean, we still have a very broad field, but it's still narrowly defined urology. But imagine, you know, being a primary care provider where you're trying to balance, you know, a range of health conditions, a range of patients, all that bring their own kind of heterogeneity and what's affecting them that day. That's a very hard job. So can we help them with that job by incorporating clinical decision support? One of the systems that does this the best is the VA healthcare system. And the VA healthcare system has an electronic health record. They were one of the first health systems to adopt an electronic health record that has clinical reminders. We actually used this when I was at UCLA to initiate a really cool quality improvement project that I think highlights the potential of EHRs. But I think we haven't really seen that potential bear out in day-to-day practice with our currently used EHRs. But it was a clinical reminder where if a patient was flagged to be an active smoker with a smoking-related urological condition like bladder cancer, erectile dysfunction, something like that, it prompted the provider to refer them to the smoking cessation clinic. And we showed, not surprisingly, that if you embedded this clinical decision support reminder into day-to-day practice, you increase the rate of active smokers being referred for smoking cessation counseling, which is a great outcome. That's a huge win for that patient and a great demonstration of how we as a small surgical subspecialty can influence health outcomes beyond their urological condition, right? Because if that patient quits, a range of other health benefits, you know, occur as an add-on to that. So I think that's sort of an aspirational example of what we would hope we can do with electronic health records. It just hasn't borne out yet. And I think, you know, if we do incorporate the guideline and present it to the patient during discussion, our job also is medical translation. We are to take what some of that language is that may not be interpretable to the public and make it clear so that they can understand and ask, you know, are you following? And if people don't follow it, how do we break it down some more? I really wanted people to really understand what was being presented. Yeah. One of the research studies that I lead is developing patient-centered versions of health information documents like pathology reports. And the joke I always make is that, you know, to a patient, that document might as well be written in wingdings. And there's an analogy that I heard as a medical student that I think is an important thing for us to remember as healthcare providers when we interact with our patients on a day-to-day basis. And that analogy is that You learn as many new words your first year in medical school as you do immersed in a foreign language country. And so it's just a great way of saying medicine is a foreign language. And so we need to be translators for that. And part of that is what we're talking about here, helping them understand what guidelines are, why we use them, and why patients are lucky if we apply guideline-based care. Nicely said. Just to help somebody listening who maybe is going to be encountering a situation with a practitioner, how do they know? What should they ask? How should they approach their practitioner? I think it's a, a very reasonable question to ask, you know, what do the guidelines say I should do as a patient with diabetes or high blood pressure when I'm seeing you on a regular basis? You know, is there something within my power that I should be thinking about or that I should be asking you? One of my favorite questions that patients ask me is, 
you know, what questions, if you were me, what questions would you be asking yourself? And I think that a very reasonable question is, is this not just what you would recommend, but is this what guidelines would recommend or the average, you know, bladder cancer expert would recommend for my treatment? And it should be an easy thing to respond to, you know, if it's a yes, that's great. If it's a no, you know, why not? Why are we going outside the box with your care? And can we explain why? So do you have any references uh, for patients to be able to go to? We mentioned the American Neurological Association. You want to go how to find that? Yeah. Uh, the AUA is at auanet.org. And it's very easy to find the guideline statements on that. They have actually a bar above that takes you to their guidelines and white papers and all of their various documents. And most of those have patient lay summaries, which are really fantastic. There are a number of other different quality repositories that are available at a number of different organizations, including the National Quality Forum and the NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, also serves as a clearinghouse for quality measures, uh, www.ncqa.org. The Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality also is a repository for quality measures and can be a resource for people that are trying to figure out, you know, what are the best things to do for their general medical conditions. And if it still applies, and I think it does, we were talking about guidelines. And when I was working on a uh, project for the AUA, I was given a sheet that showed the amount of evidence that was needed from a best practice to a white paper. Guidelines were at the top of the heap. It required the most. So when people see these, I think there are on that page at the AUA, besides the guidelines, there are also some best practices or clinical standards. They carry medical evidence, but the guidelines are at the highest of the necessity. Most guidelines will rate the strength of the recommendation. So if you look at the guidelines for the AUA, each guideline statement will rate the strength of the recommendation. And that helps you know, gosh, is this something that really has the weight of a lot of evidence behind it? Or is this something where a bunch of experts just put their brains together and said, this is what we think the best thing is to do. That kind of expert opinion is the lowest level of evidence underlying a lot of these statements. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of our statements come from because there are just so many things that we need to keep track of and we need to do in medicine that we don't always have high level evidence to compare treatment A to treatment B or strategy A to strategy B. And so we just have to do our best based on our expert opinion. But the statements that have high level of evidence underpinning those statements, those are the ones that become best practices. Yes, I uh, totally agree. Well, Dr. John Gore, thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm always so impressed when I listen to your expertise in all areas, and particularly this area is amazing. So thank you for what you do, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Rich. This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, PhD. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. 
The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original guide to men's health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.